Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. Joining me today, I have a great honor and privilege because being that it's Earth Day, I wanted to find an hour-long special feature guest who would do our subject justice, and I think I've done just that. I'm here with Mr. Roger Blowbaum. Roger has been identified as one of the 25 individuals who have done the most to develop organic agriculture in the United States. You have a wealth of a history working both in the Midwest as well as on the East Coast in Washington and policy. Roger, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Well, I think you have a great deal of historical insight about the agricultural movement in the United States, the role of Earth Day, your role with Earth Day, your work with Senator Nelson. But I have to ask you, first of all, how did you get to where you are today? Well, um, I think one of the basic things as I look back was that I, I grew up on a southern Iowa crop and livestock farm that, looking back, really was an organic farm, not that that was so unusual at that time. So I think I was kind of preconditioned to become interested in environmental issues and then on to organic, which, of course, is environmental farming. And so it's one thing just sort of followed the other. So you started out in the Midwest, and you ended up working for Senator Nelson, Wisconsin senator, and he was a true environmental activist, I guess you could say. Let's say he, I know activist isn't always a, a welcome term, but he was concerned about the environment from an economic standpoint, and you worked with him, and you worked on DDT legislation in particular. How did you transition from being in the Midwest to going to Washington, D.C.? Well, actually, I won a congressional fellowship in national competition as, a, as an editor in the Associated Press Bureau in Chicago, and so I had a year's study of Congress that was had a stipend and, you know, regular symposiums. And I worked in the office of the House Majority Whip, and then I worked in the office of the Senate Majority Whip. So I had this wonderful experience and introduction to Washington. And, of course, I already knew Senator Nelson, having covered him as a reporter when he was the governor of Wisconsin. And so I transitioned then onto the staff. And so you, you were bitten by the bug that people get in D.C. and they don't want to leave. I guess that is true. I found it so fascinating, and, and of course I'm still here. So. Right. <clears throat> so tell me about your work with Senator Nelson and especially his focus on Earth Day. Well, my responsibility, my title actually was press secretary, and so I worked with him, of course, on we had a weekly radio program, where I did both the questions and answers. Most of the programs dealt with the environment or agricultural policy, which were my two other responsibilities. Staff people had both sort of line responsibilities and then they had issue responsibilities. And, of course, the environment and agriculture were my two favorites, and so I was very happy with this. Uh, the DDT thing uh, sort of came as a surprise to me as a staff member. Uh, Senator Nelson returned from a trip to... Uh, Wisconsin to Madison, and he walked into the office, and he started talking about dead robins 
on the lawn at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And he finally said, I want a bill to ban DDT. He just said it just like that. And then he said, and I was standing there, and he knew the kind of work I was doing, and he said, I want Roger to do it. And I said, well, yeah, fine, okay. And he said, one really important point that we absolutely have to be sure is taken care of. The legislation has to go to the parliamentarian to make absolutely certain that it doesn't end up in the Agriculture Committee because all legislation that attempted to limit pesticide use had ended up in the ag committees, and it was a graveyard, and they never got out. They never saw the light of day. And so I worked with the parliamentarian and did get the bill referred to the Interior Committee where Senator Nelson was the leader and where he wanted it. So, so that worked. That was a brilliant strategy. And necessary. Yeah. Well, I have a quote from Senator Gaylord Nelson. It says, The economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment, not the other way around. And how wonderful that he had the insight to recognize the dangers of DDT and to take successful action. Tell me about the process. I mean, how long did it take from start to finish? Well, there was a saying on Capitol Hill at that time that any time you came up with a, a new serious legislative proposal that it normally took about seven years to get it done. And wow. I think that's pretty much what happened with this. But we, we got off to a very fast start. Uh, I spent a lot of time doing research, and I think one of the things that, that we discovered was that the situation was really quite a bit worse than what we had thought. We found, for example, that USDA was still recommending DDT for widespread use. And so we got a copy of, a, of an internal, I guess you'd call it an official recommendation that was entitled Suggested Guides for the Use of Insecticides to Control Insects Affecting Crops, Livestock, and Households, 1965. But what it showed that was so interesting was that there were 366 instances where DDT uh, was a suggested use. So USDA, in all fairness to USDA, the guide also dealt with other pesticides and other alternatives. But the key to all this was DDT was 18 cents a pound. The other uh, common pesticides were as much as $2.50 a pound. And, and, of course, you get the idea. Mm-hmm. People chose the cheap pesticides. Where was it being made at the time? I don't know the answer to that. Because... I, my thinking is that whoever and wherever this pesticide was being produced, had they gotten wind of your efforts to stop its production and use, there would have been opposition. Well, there was opposition. I was visited by all kinds of, of lobbyists and people from the chemical industry, of course. Mm-hmm. But we were, not, we were not influenced by that, I think I can certainly say. And one of the reasons was that we found that the production in the 10-year period ending in 1963 was 1.5 billion pounds. And also there was research showing that the residues that were in the soil, you know, would last for years and years and years. And, of course, one of the things that caught people's attention was the spread of DDT to penguins and seals in Antarctica and just about... Anywhere, anywhere you could think of, DDT was present. You know, and I understand that it is still present. 
it's considered one of the POPs, the persistent organic pesticides that uh, I believe in the, in the pole areas, they are finding that with the melting of the ice, uh-huh. the DDT is being released again. I'm not surprised at that. And yeah. it was moved through the air, through fog, through rain, you know, as many other pesticides are. Right. Yeah, this was from, uh, I have a, a paper here from the Pesticide Action Network of North America. Mm-hmm. It says, we already know that DDT trapped in glaciers is being released by global warming and that melting glaciers are exposing penguins in Antarctica to DDT. Mm-hmm. So right. it's still rearing its ugly head after decades of being banned. Yes. Well, now well, it's banned in the U.S., but is it banned abroad? Well, what what Nelson called for was the ban on the manufacture. Okay. And so that suggests, uh, Melinda, that it was mostly manufactured here. Okay. Uh, there also, you know, some of the lobbyists said, well, this is fine, you know, it's showing up in fish and wildlife and all that, but we don't have any proof that it has any impact on the health of humans. <laughs> and, and I remember one of Nelson's quotes was that, uh, we do not know the long-term effect of DDT on humans, but the evidence of its devastating effect on wildlife should be due cause for alarm. And, of course, he also called for research on this, which obviously needed to be done. Right. It's interesting that we're not connecting the dots between what might happen to a lower species and what might happen to us. Don't you think that's fascinating? It is fascinating. It's almost like we have to go back to school and study basic biology. It should be required. That's correct. It seems so obvious. It does. So you started working on this legislation in what year? I believe it was was 1966, I believe. And when it eventually passed was when? It was after Earth Day. Hmm. I think it was close to the seven years. Wow. I don't have that number here, but it took a long time. Yeah. So why did it take so long? Well, because there was a lot of opposition, I think. I mean, I think this was really the first attempt to challenge cheap, much-used pesticide used in agriculture, used in many other ways, used worldwide. Sure. It was was tough. Yeah. Well, I believe that this one piece of legislation is responsible for bringing back the American bald eagle. At least that's what I've read online. I don't know, but it would seem to make sense. And I wonder, how did Senator Nelson connect the dots between those dead birds that he saw in Wisconsin and the use of DDT? Well, he was aware of some of the research that had gone on with bald eagles in particular. And he stayed on top of what was of the threats of all kinds, to fish and wildlife. He was very much not just an outdoors person, but a student of threats to to the outdoors. And so he was aware of the situation with bald eagles. We talked about it before. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he knew when the dead robins showed up that, at least in his mind, DDT was the culprit, and it was time to act. Mm Mm-hmm. So how long did you work in Senator Nelson's office totally? I think I worked there almost three years, and then, you know, I stayed in touch with Senator Nelson and his staff for a long time. You know, you develop a a friendship and a relationship with someone that you admire. Right. And so I did have this relationship to into the Earth Day period, 
and I, I thought it was interesting in digging out some of my historic stuff over the last few days. I found a whole file on all of the memos that Senator Nelson had sent out in the, you know, the run-up time right. to Earth Day. And so I, I have all those. I mean, they're, they're just wonderful. Well, being that this is a monumental anniversary, the 40th anniversary of Earth Day today, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about the history of Earth Day? I think that would be great. All right. Well, let me start out by saying that the Earth Day event really was conceived and led by, by Senator Nelson, and that it is interesting that he got the Earth Day thing rolling in October of 1969. Uh, Nelson had followed the student teach-ins opposing the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. and he had confidence that if he could get students interested in this, that they would begin to stir up public opinion and make things happen. And, of course, that is exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. And, Melinda, I'd like to just share with you the five sentences of Senator Nelson's call to action that resulted in 20 million people being involved in Earth Day. And here are his exact words. I'm convinced that all that is needed now is the trigger to activate the overwhelming insistence of the new generation on environmental quality. It is the young who can begin to stem the tide of disaster. To marshal such an effort, I am proposing a national teach-in on the crisis of the environment to be held next spring on every university campus across this nation. The crisis is so imminent, in my opinion, that every university should set aside one day in the school year, the same day across the nation, for the teach-in. On that day, prominent ecologists, biologists, political scientists, public officials, and political leaders could meet with students and faculty in symposia, invocations, and panel discussions to discuss environmental topics selected by the student body. That was the call to action. Hmm. You know, I, I think that history tends to repeat itself, and I see a mirroring of what was happening then to what's happening today. I am so um, heartened, really, by the way young people are becoming more active in politics and certainly the environment. I think that Senator Nelson was absolutely correct that our youth, has a tremendous energy and a tremendous conviction to protecting the environment. And it's yes. so important that we nurture that. And I think that we're seeing this, you and I, Melinda, in, in person right. at the Organic Farming Conference each year. All of the young people, the young organic farmers, and the enthusiasm of that uh, three-day gathering. It's just You just don't see it anywhere else in agriculture. I totally agree with you, and I should tell our listeners that Roger and I both have the honor of serving on the MOSES board. MOSES stands for the Midwestern Organic and Sustainable Education Service Board, and it is truly uh, once a year there is a meeting in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and it is a gathering of people who are dedicated to organic farming. And I was pretty depressed before I went to my first MOSES meeting, thinking that I was troubled by what I saw as the demise of the environment and our food supply. And then I went to the Moses Conference, and I met you and all the other wonderful people there, and I realized that there was uh, a change a-coming. 
and I was truly heartened by what I witnessed there. 2,800 people. 2,800 people. Yeah, and growing. Yes. This is a good thing. Well, I want to ask you uh, with regard to Earth Day, do you think that we have made gains since the first Earth Day in 1970? Are we better off today than we were 40 years ago? Oh, I certainly think so. And I think that one of the things that was emphasized uh, after Earth Day was not, not to let it drop, but to begin addressing the whole area of, of follow-up, of political follow-up. And I was privileged a year after Earth Day to be invited to speak at a symposium at Iowa State University. And my assignment was, you know, the politics of Earth Day and what do we do next? Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things was, uh, when I got there, I found that a small group of professors, young professors at Iowa State, had started a group called Iowa Citizens for Environmental Quality and invited me to be on the board. And, of course, I accepted. And this enabled me to get involved with some follow-up in my own state. And one of the things that, that we pushed for at that meeting was an Iowa agency that would be the state uh, version of the EPA, and that actually was established by the legislature shortly afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of a first step. But I think that beyond that, there was there was a lot of, I guess you could say, chaos and disarray in Washington because there were so many environmentally related bills that were introduced. And committees, as they always do, were fighting over the jurisdiction uh, for these bills. And I think one one case that that, that I remembered were I think the the Congress that followed Earth Day, there were 1,300 water bills, mostly dealing with water pollution, and they ended up in 13 Senate committees and 11 House committees. It was just absolute chaos. And so it's true that Earth Day generated all kinds of new legislative proposals. The Congress had a hard time trying to sort this all out and get down to the business of actually passing some of these bills. President Nixon, who was not a great environmentalist, but certainly was aware of of the Earth Day turnout, uh, went ahead and established the Federal Council on Environmental Quality, CEQ, which still exists today and is been, I think, one of the real good things that resulted from Earth Day. But the first CEQ was ordered by Congress to prepare an annual report. And, of course, when the annual report was prepared, the people at the CEQ said, well, who should we present this to on the Hill? There was no joint committee on the environment, and there was no place to go with this report. So it was just more of the same chaos. Are there still reports coming from the CEQ, and where do they go today? Well, the CEQ does issue reports, but it depends to a great extent on who's the president. And some presidents have appointed strong people to the council. Some have indicated that they really don't care much about it. And so I think that the the CEQ overall has been a mixed bag. But occasionally they will tackle an issue and put some resources into 
turning out a, a fine report. And whether Congress, you know, really addresses it or not, it becomes public. The environmental groups pick up on it, and it becomes a, a political issue nationally because the CEQ has done that. Mm-hmm. Well, Roger, you are still in Washington. Senator Nelson, of course, is, is deceased. What do you think are the biggest issues facing our national government with regard to the environment today? Well, I think that it's it's very difficult to get bipartisan agreement on any of the big issues of the day. You can yeah. take climate change. You can take agriculture. You know, you can just go down the line of all of these large issue areas that involve the environment, even such things as, you know, how many miles to the gallon cars, cars should get and all of those things. It's almost always gridlock or very, very slow movement or putting deadlines off way into the future so that nothing really happens. Right. So I think, you know, I'm just sort of discouraged by the process and the fact also I think that we lack real champions like like the Nelsons, not just Kaylor Nelson, but others who would just get out in front and not let go until something was done. We we simply do not have that on environmental issues, in my opinion. Do you think that the financial influence on our government policies today, do you think that's worse today than it was back when you were there? Oh, much worse. There are now 35,000 registered lobbyists. Uh, members of Congress, Senate and House, spend a lot of them every day get on the phone to raise money. I mean, it's a corrupt system. It needs to be fixed. I like to tell the story that when I was in Senator Nelson's office working on legislation, I never once was aware of who contributed to his campaigns. This was never discussed in our office among those of us working on legislation, and we never had to even consider conflict of interest or pressure from someone who had made a large contribution. That's the way it should be, but it's not that way today. What happened? Well, money has just slowly but surely crept into the system. You know, the latest Supreme Court decision even opens the door wider now. Right. That corporations can become persons as far as contributing to campaigns. This is an extremely serious issue. Fewer and fewer controls on campaign expenditures, and in my opinion, a lot of corruption. And so it's just, we have real problems with our system. And it's our environment and our planet that I think suffers the most in the end, and of course, ultimately, the species that live on the planet. Yes, indeed. Well, you had mentioned that scientists have become involved in Earth Day activities. Do you want to talk about that at all? Well, yes. I think that uh, one of the Earth Day accomplishments was the direct participation of scientists, partly because these events were on college campuses, university campuses, and who, for the most part, uh, did not that get that involved in these kinds of issues. I remember when I worked in Nelson's office, there were very few occasions when scientists would come by to talk to us. The exceptions on the national scene were people like Barry Commoner and Paul Ehrlich, uh, who really gained the public's attention during the whole Earth Day period. Barry Commoner, as you as you may have heard, was sometimes referred to 
as the Ralph Nader of the environmental movement, and I had the pleasure of working uh, with Barry Commoner on a project, and I can say he was an absolutely committed environmentalist in the same league with, with Senator Nelson, who he, of course, admired. Mm-hmm. But what happened was scientists got involved in Earth Day, and then the pressure was on to somehow keep them involved. And I remember after Earth Day, I got a call from a friend who, who worked on Capitol Hill, and his main uh, suggestion was about the need to keep scientists involved. And I remember he, he said, tell them to start showing up in Congress. Doing something about the environment takes some sustained effort. The lobbyists are always here, but where are the scientists? They came out of the woodwork for Earth Day last month, and we don't want them going back. So I think that um, this was kind of a moment, and I think the involvement of scientists in a lot of the policy issues of today um, is, is, is very strong. If you're just joining us, we are talking to Roger Blobaum. Roger has been identified as one of the leading 25 individuals in the United States who has truly made a difference in sustainable and organic agriculture. He worked with Senator Gaylord Nelson in Washington, D.C. He worked on the original bill to ban DDT. He is a hero in the environmental movement, and I'm thrilled to have him with us, and I'm glad our listeners are getting a special hour treat today, being that it's Earth Day. You are listening to KOPN. Stay tuned. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we are speaking today on a special hour-long program in celebration of the 40th anniversary of Earth Day with Mr. Roger Blobaum. Roger has been identified as one of the 25 top individuals who have done the most to develop organic agriculture in the United States. He wrote the original legislation to ban DDT and worked closely with U.S. Senator Gaylord Nelson, as well as environmentalist Barry Commoner. Roger, I'm really glad you mentioned Barry Commoner because you had sent me a message about him. And ironically, I remember my mother back in the late 60s and early 70s getting a newsletter from Barry Commoner. And I thought, gosh, you know, whatever happened to him? And <laughs> and what did he do? Well, he established the Center for the Biology of Natural Systems at Washington University uh, in St. Louis. And because he was a very prominent environmentalist. He was able to get grants and foundation support and so forth for the work that needed to be done on environmental issues. Now, I became involved with Barry Commoner when the center got a grant from the National Science Foundation to look at the energy energy use in agriculture. And the team started out looking at how much gas is used in pickups and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But after getting started, there was a discussion about the reports of organic farmers using a lot less energy than conventional farmers. And so under Barry Commoner's leadership, I was able to to join the team because of my work with organic farmers, and we did this national study that compared the economic performance and the energy use of organic farmers and conventional farmers. And the bottom line was, one, you could farm organically and have the same kind of economic returns than if you farmed conventionally. But second, and this was the real one that was unexpected, 
organic farmers, the data showed, were using only half as much energy as the conventional farmers. So I had the pleasure of working closely with Barry Commoner on a project that I loved and that had, you know, wonderful results as well. Well, I should let our listeners know that you have a remarkable website, and it's simply rogerblobaum.com, and that's Roger, R-O-G-E-R, Blobaum, B-L-O-B-A-U-M.com, and you can read these incredible interviews that you did with organic farmers back when, Roger. When, when did you start those first interviews? I started them in 1972. 1972, and the comments that the farmers make about soil quality and production are, are issues that we need to be addressing today. Absolutely. And I can say, uh, Melinda, I've just started this website. I have a tremendous amount of material still to go on. I will have probably 20 of these farmer profiles with photos and then a lot of other material uh, that's associated with the movement in the 70s and on to the uh, enactment of the Organic Foods Production Act and and up to the present. So I will be putting on historic material from a 40-year span in the organic movement. It takes time. Yes, it does. Well, I wondered, uh, you gave a wonderful presentation in Wisconsin a couple of months ago, about organic farming, the history of it. And what I recognized from your presentation, something that bothers me today, is this animosity sometimes toward organic farming. And I don't know where it comes from except to think that perhaps people feel somewhat threatened if a little bit of their bottom line is being whittled away by someone else. But I, you know, I have a good friend who's an organic farmer, and you know him, Jim Goodman. I've interviewed him before. He's I sure organic, do. He's a great organic dairy farmer in Wisconsin, and he says, you know, when the oil runs out, we're all going to be organic farmers if we want to eat. <laughs> He's so right. Yeah. There was tremendous animosity toward organic farmers when I became involved. You know, it went away when we had uh, a different Secretary of Agriculture and um, organic farming was recognized as, as an alternative. And then in the 80s, again, there was animosity. And I can tell you when we uh, worked on the Organic Foods Production Act in 1990, USDA absolutely threw everything against us, including the kitchen sink. It was just incredible. But they couldn't get it stopped. And, so, and the Ag Committee was right along with them trying to keep this organic legislation from being passed. So some of this has gone away, but I, my own experience out in rural areas is that this does exist, not as much as it once did, and I've never been able to really explain why conventional farmers have felt so threatened. Mm-hmm. I think, Melinda, looking at our organic conference in La Crosse that you mentioned earlier, we have a tradition there of not slamming or uh, conventional farming, and we've made it comfortable at the conference for conventional farmers to come and take a look at organic and to not feel that, you know, somebody was critical of what they do. And I think this has worked very well, and I think that's sort of the approach that we that we need to take. Sure. I agree. You know, I, I think that 
something that you mentioned earlier about keeping scientists involved in the conversation. Something that troubles me very much is the gagging of some scientists because of, once again, the ugly dollar rears its head where public institutions are dependent upon private funding. And everywhere I speak, and I don't know if you hear the same stories, somebody will pull me over to the side and say, you know, we did research on this years ago, and I'll give you a good example of of, um, just grass-fed beef, for example. Uh, A researcher had approached me and said, you know, we did research on this years ago, and we found out that it was better, better for water quality, better for the nutritional quality of the meat, um, but we were told not to release that data. And many months ago, I interviewed Don Lauder out in California. Of course, same situation with UC Davis, where we've got good scientific data showing that organic agriculture can produce just as much food, if not more. It will protect the, the soil quality and protect the air and water quality. And yet, Sometimes that data doesn't get out or the research isn't funded at an adequate level. Well, Melinda, I think one of the, one of the very best studies of all time is one done at Michigan State, which looked at 223 studies comparing organic and conventional farming yields. Yields are always brought up. They say, well, it'd be great if organic farmers could get the yields that conventional farmers do. Well, the bottom line of this study was there's no reason why organic farmers can't, to use the the term, feed the world. Right. I mean, the yields are comparable. I think that my own experience in in doing uh, field work on the Berry Commoner Project years ago, that corn, which is a very definite nitrogen feeder, is the one crop where you often see a difference in yield. But we also see that in many of these studies in the Midwest, alfalfa, oats, soybeans, and some of the other more minor crops uh, yield just as much, and in many cases more, than when farmed conventionally. And then, Melinda, you take the whole area of fruits and vegetables, I don't know of any challenges regarding the yield of organically produced fruits and vegetables. This has never really become an issue. It usually centers on grain, and particularly on corn. Right, which we're producing way too much of as it is. And we don't use it to feed people for the most part anyway. Right. Industrial uses to feed the poultry industry in Russia and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, you also mentioned a study that, uh, this was in Washington, that compared the economic returns and energy use of organic and conventional agriculture. Yes. That was the very commoner study I just mentioned. Okay. Okay. Well, there's another study that you wrote about. Let's see. This was published in Inside Organics from the broadcaster. Yes. From July of 2007. The title is Organic Farming and Global Climate Change, Perfect Topic for Earth Day. Organic farming's contribution to mitigating the impact of global warming, although fully documented, gets little public notice and is not rewarded. That is certainly true. There's study after study, and in the, in the, the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania has done some wonderful gathering of data to, to make this case. 
But or, organic, I'm trying to think of the, of the word. Are we thinking of carbon sequestration? Sequestration is the word I'm looking for. Organic sequesters large amounts of carbon in the soil. There's no question about this. In the same way that forests do and native grasslands do. And this is not the case with conventionally farmed agriculture where synthetic nitrogen fertilizer tends to burn the organic matter from the soil and make the soil harder and and harder to work. And so there is a huge difference in terms of what we might contribute to dealing with global warming. And these are there are studies all over the world that make this case. Well, you know, these are really tough concepts to understand, I think. Uh, they're vague, and because we're not particularly science literate, yes. when we talk about these, you know, these compounds, and it, it becomes complicated. Even for someone who has a college degree, it's, it's difficult to really see the big picture. Well, you've got a quote in here, actually, from the Rodale Institute, and I'd like to share it with our listeners. You write, Converting the 160 million acres of corn and soybeans in the U.S. to organic production would sequester enough carbon to satisfy 73% of the Kyoto targets for CO2 reduction and more than wipe out U.S. agriculture's massive emission problems. Absolutely. This is good data. And yet the problem is how do you get through to decision makers, legislators, who have lobbyists on the other side beating down their door. Yeah. You've really been able to see both sides so clearly. Being in the belly of the beast in Washington and working on legislation, seeing how it matters where these policies end up on whose table, and then being in the field and working with farmers firsthand and doing this project for Rodale. Yes. Well... I didn't do the project for Rodale, but I have followed it closely and visited the plots, and I have, you know, great respect for what they've done on this issue. Well, your farmer interviews, were they for Rodale? Yes. Yeah, okay, that's what I meant. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, yes, all of that. Right. And, and uh, you know, over a period of three or four years, I provided all kinds of information to Rodale for the magazine, uh, for special publications, and... I was sort of their person in the Midwest who provided information on organic farming. They were leaders in organic farming, of course, nationwide. For decades. But at the time that I became involved, they didn't have anybody uh, doing reporting for them in in the upper Midwest. Mm-hmm. So how long did you, did you do writing for Rodale? I did it for, I think, about three years. And then there was a change in the editors, and there was also then the move uh, to take this kind of reporting out of Organic Gardening and Farming magazine and to set up the new magazine called The New Farm. And so I never became involved in The New Farm or worked with The New Farm editors. Organic Gardening and Farming was that was the group of editors that I worked with and enjoyed. Well, and I still think that the Rodale Institute is probably one of the best sources for consumers to go, and farmers, and anyone who's interested in this topic, to get cutting-edge research and to see the huge impact that organic farming and agriculture can make globally. 
Well, I think one of the benefits of the kind of research that, that the Rodeo Institute has done is, number one, they've done it for a long time. And so you really do have to have these experiments go, you know, a long time, like 10, 20, 30 years. And the second thing is that they've had field-sized plots with regular machinery. And I think farmers are always a little skeptical of these comparisons that are done at, uh, let's say, experiment stations where you have a whole bunch of small plots where the comparisons are made. Farmers really like to see these comparisons made with small fields, much like what they have on their own farms. It's much more credible. Mm-hmm. You know, you touched just briefly on some international work that you've done. And I want it, I feel compelled to bring this up because this is just another piece of your amazing history. But your international work includes consultations with the Green Food Development Center, an agency of the Ministry of Agriculture in China, and you've also been in Budapest. Can you describe a little bit about what you learned at the Institute for Agroecology at the China Agricultural University and how what is going on in China compares with what you see in the United States? Well, it was it's interesting, I think, and not normally recognized that there was no organic sector in China until 1994. You know, many, many years after there was an organic sector in the United States and Europe and and other places in the world. So in many ways, they were starting from scratch. And one of the things that got it going was consultants brought in from elsewhere. A number of European consultants became involved, were invited in and became involved. Uh, I was a consultant. I was there. I made 10 organic trips to China over several years. And I did the first organic agriculture short course done by anybody in China. I did this at China Agricultural University. And I have to say, Melinda, I met and worked with some absolutely outstanding scientists and organic advocates and public officials who are still doing their very best to get the organic sector in China squared away. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's a huge country with, with several million farms and, and small farmers who had never heard of organic farming. And to work with them, to get them to adopt the practices of organic and to meet the standards and to be certified is a huge leap. And so this has been really difficult for them, and I think it's been difficult also for American consumers who really worry a little bit about organic imports from China. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's interesting because we are not meeting our demand. We don't have enough farms. We don't have, an, we don't have enough organic farms. We don't have enough organic farmers to meet the demand. So it would seem like one of the things we could lobby for as consumers of organic food would be to expand our own national production of organic agriculture so that we wouldn't have to depend on other countries. Well, I think that's one of the most important points we could make on this program. Mm -hmm. You know, we have only about 12,000 certified farms in this country. You know, the whole organic sector is built on this small, very small number of farms. We import an awful lot, and as you suggest, when our own sector does not expand and the demand for organic expands, well, the slack is taken up by imports from from elsewhere. 
and one of the problems with it. Well, let me just say that I that I spoke at a meeting in La Crosse. It was not part of the conference. Well, it was the O Farm Group, which markets organic grain together in this country. A very fine organization. But I did raise the issue of the fact that I thought we needed more organic farmers, and I sort of reviewed for the group what the 2007 census showed about the very small number of farmers that we have. And I was sort of surprised that one of the farmers who was on the board of this organization really took me on. He said, I've got two years' worth of organic wheat in my bin, and I can't sell it. So I think, and I felt really bad at sort of what I had been saying, I think one of the problems is it's very hard to look at where you need more production and maybe not overproduce in other areas, which either knocks down the price or actually takes away the market for organic for for these farmers. I don't think we do that well. Mm -hmm. There was an interesting article in the New York Times. It was written by a farmer, I want to say from Minnesota, Mm -hmm. who spoke about how the constraints that are put on him, he wants to produce more organic fruits and vegetables, and yet the rules that are in place through the USDA really prevent him from meeting the demand. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that, you know, one of my strategies has always been With 2% of the population farming in the United States, farmers need a a leg up with consumer support. And I think that if consumers and farmers work together, we can accomplish, we can move mountains. Well, one of my approaches to the politics of organic, and you may have noticed it in my columns, I truly believe that organic farmers cannot do this alone. And I've been involved for many years in trying to strengthen the coalitions that support organic farmers. And that includes not just consumers, environmentalists, animal protection groups, in many cases faith-related, faith-based groups, and others. There's a tremendous coalition out there of groups that support organic agriculture. You know, I'm involved with the National Organic Coalition, Mm -hmm. and it is an organization that works the hill constantly, on behalf of organic farmers, even though the principles in the National Organic Coalition are, for the most part, from the type of organizations that I've just described. So what I always like to stress when I go to the conference in in La Crosse, when I have a chance to speak, is you organic farmers have many, many friends, and a lot of them are in Washington, and you need to know that. Absolutely. You know, I heard Eric Holt Jimenez speak. He's with Food First out in California, and he said that the science isn't enough. No. It takes grassroots rumbling. And so we've got the science. I I think for anyone who debates the science, uh, they just haven't looked close enough at the data. But I think what we need is a lot more grassroots rumbling, and I, I can't think of a better recommendation to make on the 40th anniversary of Earth Day, but to get young and old people alike to be working together to really change the kind of food system that we have in our country and globally. I'm very concerned, too, Roger, with public health implications of agriculture that depends on endocrine-disrupting pesticides. And at the Moses meeting this past 
February, there was a wonderful presentation by Warren Porter at the, from the University of Wisconsin who spoke about what's happening to global fertility rates and how they're declining. And then if we look around and we see the increases in allergies and asthma and autism, you know, you have to scratch your head and say, what is going on in our environment? Well, what's going on is that we're poisoning the environment with things that should never be allowed. And I think that, you know, just just touching base with organic, you know, we don't claim that organic is more healthful. And we don't claim that it tastes better. And we don't have that as part of our standards. But I think it's understood by consumers that organic is more healthful. And some of the presentations that have been made at the conference certainly show this, especially, I think, this is important with children. Absolutely. So we have a lot of work to do in this area, and it's really not about organic in terms of standards and certification and accreditation, but it's a hugely important area in terms of public health. And as we look at, I think there's been a basic understanding that on organic farms, you rarely ever have to call a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that tell you something? Right. One of the problems with this sort of thing, with animal experiments, is that linking this to human health takes a very long time and it's very expensive. And we don't have very much good research in this area. Right, and many times that research is unethical. Yes, this is true too. But we've got good animal data to point to the organic food and production methods as being superior. And I I want to also mention, touch on something that you mentioned about organic being more healthful or not. I think that expanding our definition of what is healthy food is very important. It's not just a matter of how many milligrams of vitamin C does an orange have if it's raised organically versus conventionally. It's about expanding the definition of healthy food to include how does it impact my water, how does it impact further future generations. So broadening our perspective a bit would be helpful. Well, we have all of this excitement now about possible E. coli problems with uh, leafy greens, and they're trying, there are people on Capitol Hill now trying to say that you can't have wild animals on your farm because they might spread E. coli on the fields. At the same time, all of this huge concern over most of it's manure-related, I have to say. Meantime, they're just spraying and spreading pesticides all over that have a much greater impact, adverse impact on human health, and nobody is saying anything about that. Right. This is just not fair, although politics is not fair. But I'll tell you that the agencies here in Washington, the Bureau of the Budget, for example, where people are not farmers, EPA, FDA, USDA, are just obsessed with manure, whereas manure is one of the great resources of farming. It's just crazy. And I'm sure that as a child growing up on a small family farm, you saw much greater biodiversity than you see today when you go back to the Midwest. Oh, there's no question about it. Our farm was totally diverse with several different kinds of livestock, several different crops, and lots of legumes, alfalfa, red clover, lespedisa, sweet clover, and manure. You know, we're all part of of the fertility program. It really worked. 
and you know I'm I'm totally convinced at what I saw, and I and I have to say a fact that I often mention in meetings. In all the time that I was growing up on the farm, and we had dairy cattle, we had beef cattle, we had hogs, we also had horses. Only once in all those years did we ever have a veterinarian come out to the farm. I think that tells you something. It certainly does. Roger, I have to tell you, we need to wind up, wrap up, and I want to give you a chance to mention anything of importance that I neglected to ask. Well, Melinda, I think your questions have been very good. This has been a very wonderful uh, conversation. I can't think of anything that we've really, uh, we've really missed. You know, I think that I just, I just want your listeners to know that a full commitment to organic agriculture is well justified. And I think probably as Jim Goodman puts it so well, when we run out of energy, of course, we're all going to become organic. Uh, that's said very well. Well, and I want to make sure that our listeners know about your website again. That's rogerblowbomb.com. And I, I was so captivated by the stories, the interviews that you had with farmers. Clarence Van Zant. Uh, this is great. I have to just share this with our listeners. He farms 135 acres of rolling land in central Iowa, has never put much stock in the advice of economists who insist farmers have to keep getting bigger to make it. You know, hallelujah for him to remind us that bigger isn't necessarily better and that our homeland security truly depends on being able to feed ourselves. Absolutely. I want to thank you for your work in Washington. I want to thank you for drafting the policy that banned DDT. I want to thank you for joining with Senator Gaylord Nelson and working with Barry Commoner and writing for the Rodale Press to get information out and to make policy changes. I know you're still working, and I and having a passion keeps us strong and alive and vibrant, and you are very much so today. You bring us great history, and it's been a real honor to have you. Thank you so much, Melinda. It's been a pleasure to be on the program, and I have to say that I do something on organic every single day. I absolutely love it, and I can't wait to get to the office in the morning. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us. If you are wondering who the interesting gentleman is that I've been speaking with, this is Mr. Roger Blobaum. Roger has been identified as one of the top 25 people in organic history to truly make a difference. Please visit his website, rogerblobaum.com, read about his biography, his history and politics, and his wonderful stories about organic farmers throughout the decades. Roger, thank you again. It's been my pleasure. Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, listeners. Have a happy Earth Day and eat organically.